Come on. I don't feel like a movie. Me neither. Too bad. Let's go. Guess what? What? I think we're still having fun. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is one of my gradual students, gradually realizing she doesn't want to do this anymore, my lovely wife, Nikia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nikia's first viewing of The World According to Garp, George Roy Hill's 1982 adaptation of John Irving's best-selling novel. So, Nikia, as I said last week, I'm... Not sure how well The World According to Garp satisfies our mandate. Okay. Uh, We sort of have three criteria here at The Unenthusiastic Critic. You have three criteria. (laughs) What are your criteria? I don't want to do this. (laughs) We watch critically acclaimed movies that Mm -hmm. you haven't seen. Mm -hmm. We watch movies everyone else has seen Mm -hmm. that you haven't seen. That may or may not be critically acclaimed. Right. Right. And we watch films you haven't seen that were, for whatever reason, woven inextricably into the synapses of my own brain at a formative age. Okay. It's that third bucket that's (laughs) concerning. Garp is, if anything, in this latter category. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reviews were okay. It got a lot of three-star reviews. Mm Mm-hmm. They were, it was it's certainly not considered a masterpiece by anyone, as far as I can tell. And it was not hugely popular. I don't know. I mean, it, it did okay. It made money the year it came out, but it was not a mega hit. I don't think everyone in the world saw it or is familiar with it or has the same relationship to it that I have. So probably this may turn out to be our least downloaded episode of all time. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But we're setting ourselves up for failure. Exactly. Right? Yes. <laughs> It's a good time to tune out, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) But though I have not seen this movie in probably 20 years or so, I suspect that I would be able to recite along with every single line of this film while we watch it, if you would like me to do that. I would not. You always enjoy it when I do that. No, I really don't. I would prefer to just hear the terribleness the one time and not in echo. (laughs) And I don't even know why this this was a movie that we watched in my house a lot when I was a kid. My parents were early adopters of home video, mm-hmm. uh, maybe because we lived in a part of the state where you couldn't get cable. You, so, I'm sorry, you could not get cable. No, you could, they didn't run the cable out as far as Jesus. as far as my parents' house. <laughs> okay. You, if you lived in town, you could get cable. We lived kind of out in the woods. You couldn't get cable. So we had the three channels plus PBS on, you know, the rabbit ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had one of the first VCRs I ever saw. It, I remember it had a, the remote control had a cord. It was, that's how wow. retro this was. And we also had, and I, why we had both of these things, I have no idea. The, the local electronic store must have been pushing all this stuff. We had... A disc player that it was CED format, which went obsolete a few years later. No, that is Um, anything, 
any technology that was about to go obsolete, that's what we had. <laughs> when I was in high school, I had an Amstrad computer, really just a word processor. Mm -hmm. And then like two years later, by the time I went to college, it was impossible to get discs or <laughs> printer ribbons or anything for it because it had just been phased out completely. Anyway, so we had this player thing. It was the movies looked like big plastic record albums. Okay. And inside was a disc. Pause. Do we say record albums? Record albums. Film videos? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I say album, that does not necessarily... You could, an album can be any number of... An album can be a book. Uh, okay. And a record can be any size. So, yes, I'm going to go with record album. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be one of those days, is yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Anyway, I don't even know why I'm talking about all of this. Big plastic record album size cartridges. And inside was basically, it wasn't vinyl, but it was basically movies on vinyl. Hmm. And you shoved the whole cartridge into the machine and then pulled it out. The record stayed inside. You had to flip it halfway through the movie. It was a terrible format. It deservedly lost the format wars shortly thereafter. I don't even like when Netflix asks me if I'm still watching. <laughs> you don't even like to push yeah, the button just, to watch just the next episode. Yeah, I just keep going. If I haven't stopped, just keep going. So, <laughs> no, this, yes, th these things held about 60 minutes of movie on mm -hmm. each side. So you had to flip it. And if the movie was longer than two hours, it was two gigantic discs. Okay. None of which is the point of this story. I mean, it's satisfying, though, in that, like, let's say that we were watching, I don't know, what's one of the movies that I hated? <laughs> Throw a dart and hit one. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, okay. for example, uh -huh. would be probably eight records. Yeah, Lord of the Rings would be like, yeah, at least three mm -hmm. gigantic discs. It would be sort of satisfying to get to the end of the record and take it out and just like break it over your knee or something and just be like, yeah, we're not <laughs> continuing this. So something to be said for that sort of technology. The point is... Uh -huh. Just like you can't slam a phone down anymore. <laughs> it's a very satisfying feeling. And that is a loss, You actually, can't do yes. it anymore. You just mm -hmm. gotta, you hit end and it just doesn't fit. And you don't want to throw your cell phone because then you're just fucking yourself. <laughs> So, sorry. Go ahead. Really? Can I can I carry on? Yes, please. <laughs> the point is, we discovered, and God knows pre-internet how we even discovered this, if you hooked the VCR and this ridiculous disc thing up together, you could record the movies mm -hmm. from the disc onto tape. Okay. So, this was early pioneer piracy. And I spent a lot of my tween and early teen years doing that. We'd rent a huge stack of the big plastic movies on disc, and then I would record them onto super long play VHS tapes. Did you sell them? No, these were just for my own. See, that's where you fell down. My own private so collection. You needed an entrepreneurial spirit. You could have had a little business running there. I lived in a town of 2,000 people. I don't know but how many of these things you thought I was going to sell. You would have sold enough to get a little bit of pocket change. <laughs> I mean, come on. And the the prize of my collection was a tape, and again, super long play, low quality, you could fit three movies on a tape, was a tape I had that had Arthur, mm -hmm. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, oh, and The World According to Garp. It's an interesting trio. <laughs> it's There's no logic to that triple bill, <laughs> but I watched that tape a bajillion times. And for some reason, my whole family watched this movie a lot. I was about 12 years old. Which is arguably too young to be seeing this movie, which has a lot of adultery and rape and various things happening in mm -hmm. it. But I remember clearly my little sister, who was about six years old, had speeches from this movie memorized for some reason. That's inappropriate. Totally inappropriate okay. and probably explains a lot about how she turned out. 
but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, this is my relationship to this movie. You have your own things like that. You said your mother was a big taper off of cable. Yes, and we had a lot of... I think I think the movie Sliver is one that you have mentioned. That was one that was of her favorites. Yeah. Watched a lot in your house. The <laughs> terrible totally, Sharon Stone. Totally inappropriate for a softcore porn movie. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> you find your fun where you can get it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I wanted to watch this movie again, and as usual, I wanted to drag you along for the ride. I feel like though this is something you could have just watched on your own, and you did not have to subject me or our listeners. I feel like I just admitted that in saying I wanted to watch it again and I wanted to drag you along for the ride. Right, and I'm saying... You're really just repeating what I just said What I'm saying is we could just not, though. <laughs> well, it's too late now. We've already announced it. Uh, oh, people are going to sue us for changing... There, there may be up. people out there who, you know, two or three people out there who have already rented and watched this movie in mm-hmm. anticipation of our episode. Mm-hmm. You want to let those people down? Yes, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. You have no respect for our listening public. If it's two or three people, <laughs> I think we're okay. <laughs> all right. So what, if anything, do you know about this movie? I don't know much at all about this movie. I know it's Robin Williams and yeah. uh, Glenn Close mm-hmm. and what's his name? Big Booey. Big Booty. What's his name? <laughs> John Lithgow. First of all, how much do I love <laughs> that you just identified John Lithgow as one of the stars of The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai? <laughs> that justifies my entire existence. That is sad. And well, you should I'll take, it I will take I it. I only really have two uh, reference points for John Lithgow. It's either that film that you made me watch or it's a... Uh, third rock from the sun okay so that's it um and i don't remember his character's name on that like really so. i'm just i'm feeling very good about myself that you just made a buckaroo buns it's reference. a low bar friend it's a really low bar uh and i know that he plays a uh, transgender character yes, he does. that's all i know about this film okay so as i said this is based on a best-selling novel by john irving Irving has written 13 novels to date, uh, but he is best known for a string of four massively successful books in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Garp was the first one. It was it was Irving's fourth novel, but that was his breakthrough book. That was where he got fuck you money and could just write for a living. Yeah. And that was followed by The Hotel New Hampshire, Cider House Rules, and A Prayer for Owen Meany. Mm. Uh, I think these are his four best known books still to this date. All four were huge international bestsellers. Garp sold, I think, over three and a half million copies in paperback or mm-hmm. something like that. And you, you, I think, have read... I've read Owen Meany. You've read Owen Meany. So mm-hmm. what did you make of Owen Meany? I enjoyed Owen Meany. It was a, a very weird, odd little book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never sort of come across a character like that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember... I, ha- I mean, it's been years since I read it, but I remember it being... Very dense, sort of lots of sort of story yeah. going on. Um, but yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I love Owen Meany. Yeah. That's that to me is his funniest book, mm-hmm. hands down. Mm-hmm. But as you remember, that yeah, there's their big novels. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that happens in them. There's a lot of plot. There's right. a lot of characters. They are weird. They sort of juggle tone between the comic and the tragic. Really dark, yeah, right. You know, sudden violence and ridiculous sexual escapades like they're all over the place Mm -hmm. and this i think makes them tempting but poor candidates for film adaptations Mm -hmm. because there's there's just too much stuff yeah and the tone is too difficult to handle so world according to garf was the first film adaptation um hotel new hampshire came out a couple years later i think that's a 
kind of terrible movie, in part for trying to adapt the book too closely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Cider House Rules is a slightly better film, in part because it doesn't try to adapt the film too closely. It sort of narrows the action down to a single year mm-hmm. versus the 40 years or whatever it is that the novel covers. There is a movie version, sort of, of Owen Meany called oh, really? Simon Birch. Oh, I heard about that, yeah. Yeah, it's barely recognizable <laughs> as inspired by the novel, and it's not very good. Okay. And then there was a movie in 2004 by Todd Williams called The Door and the Floor, which is based on about the first 80 pages of one of Irving's later novels called The Widow for One Year. Mm-hmm. And again, it was just, this was filmmakers recognizing you cannot do this entire story. Right, right. We're just going to take this one part out of it and that's movie sized mm-hmm. garp is not that though garp does truncate the story from the novel in necessary ways it does also sort of try to tell the whole story mm-hmm. and maybe that's part of why it was not a more successful movie though i think there's a lot of really good stuff in it uh directed by george roy hill who i don't think you've seen anything by george roy hill i think his best movies are all on our list and we'll get to them one of these days okay which are butch cassidy and the sundance kid the sting and Slapshot, the paul newman hockey comedy yeah no something i'm sure you're looking forward to love paul newman but <laughs> there may be a limit to that love yeah As I said last week, this is what first inspired me to do this. Uh, This is Glenn Close's first movie Mm -hmm. and her first Oscar nomination. Um, She's currently up for her seventh Oscar nomination without a win. And this movie actually came up in our episode. It was our Mother's Day episode when we watched Mamma Mia. Oh, God. Because I said the character she plays in this movie is one of my favorite on-screen mothers of all time. Okay. This was Robin Williams' second movie. I think last week I said it was his first movie. It's not. Popeye was his first movie. But this is his second movie and his first dramatic role. He had been a stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. He had done Mork and Mindy. But this was a stretch for Robin Williams. And I think you can sort of see him learning how to act Mm. in this movie. Um, I know the stories from the set were that, you know, because first of all, he was still... Coked. Very had a very close relationship with cocaine at this time. And cocaine plus Robin Williams added up to insane dervish Mm -hmm. of improvisation. But he talked about being on the set of this and George Roy Hill constantly saying to him, I don't want any of that comedy shit. Mm. Like, tone it down. He said he would try to go off on improvisational riffs and George Roy Hill would just yell cut. He's like, (laughs) I'm not going to, like, scrap that print, scrap that take. We are not going to use that. So really had to shut him down and restrain him and keep him under control (laughs) for this. And he, I think he said ultimately that was good for him because that's how he learned how to act in movies. As you said, it also includes John Lithgow as a trans woman, Mm -hmm. which now, well, I can't say now we wouldn't do that, but I think we all agree that now a cisgender man should not play a trans woman. Well, ideally, Jared Leto just won an Oscar. No, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it doesn't happen anymore, (laughs) (laughs) but hopefully it will stop happening very soon. And in fact, Irving announced a couple years ago that HBO had approached him to do Garp as like a five episode miniseries, Mm -hmm. which would be a much better idea. I don't know what the status of that is, but say Laverne Cox would make a fabulous Mm -hmm. Roberta Muldoon in Mm -hmm. this story. Um, So fingers crossed that they get that part right. 
But this was, I think, certainly the first, my first exposure to a transgender character on mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. It's a very sympathetic portrait. It's not playing her for comedy particularly. So I think in that way, it's kind of a, a, an important landmark for trans representation. Mm -hmm. um, and seems to be pretty well, while everyone says, no, a cisgender man should not right. play that character. It seems to be pretty well regarded in the trans community. Okay. We'll see what you think. 1983, the Oscars that year were known as the, you know, drag, quote unquote, Oscars, because this was the year Dustin Hoffman was up for Tootsie, uh. Julie Andrews was up for Victor Victoria. Mm -hmm. Neither of those are trans characters. Those are both cross-dressing, cross -dressing, yeah. right, female impersonator roles. Uh, Lithgow is the only one that's actually playing a trans character, but those distinctions were not right. in the in the vocabulary of the general public at the time. Okay, I don't have a whole lot of a uh, whole lot else to to say about this going into it. Okay, I don't have a lot of other background. I think one of the important things to watch out for, I think it's an important question going into this, is the extent to which this is a feminist movie, mm -hmm. which is a subject that is open to considerable debate. Okay, I think I think there will be a lot to discuss after we watch this movie, but I think we should probably just go watch it, see what you think. Okay. Okay. Garp. Garp. Garp? Yes, Garp. Sounds like a fish. When I get older, losing my head, many years from now. Hey, Garp, you want to play? Yes. Not tonight. I have a headache. Every night you have a headache. <laughs> Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine. My name is T.S. Garp. What's T.S. stand for? Terribly sexy. I used to be terribly shy. If I'd been out till quarter to three, would you lock the door? Now make it easy on yourself. Don't be a baby, Duncan. Say da-da. <laughs> Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? I hate to use a corny line like this, but haven't I seen you before? You like football? Oh, yeah. I used to watch you quite a bit. Well, you might have seen me. I was a tight end with the Philadelphia Eagles. a postcard, drop me a line, stating point of view. T.S. Garp, not the bastard son of Jenny Fields. I'm going to be safe here. Indicate precisely what you mean to say. You're sincerely wasting away. We are civilized people, and civilized people obey rules. You have one hell of a way of making converts to civilization. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? What does the TS stand for? Terribly sad. Used to be terribly sexy, but, I, but it changed. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> and we're back. During the break, Nakia and I watched The World According to Garp. Uh, Nakia, I told you this was not necessarily a critically acclaimed movie. Like I said, I think it, it got a lot of okay reviews, a lot of three-star reviews. Bruce McCabe in the Boston Globe said, Garp is a dense, rich, textured work, a sequence of scenes ultimately creating a complex, complicated life, one that is at once funny, horrifying, and heartbreaking. That was one of the better reviews. Uh, Roger Ebert, on the other hand, said the movie left him entertained but unmoved. Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, Garp is well-staged on a scene-by-scene -scene basis, but the overall movie has pacing problems. Its story consists of tiny events and wildly monumental ones with nothing intermediate to connect them. 
them. She said the novel is simply too long and too confounding to be told in a hurry. Pauline Kael kind of concurred with that. She said it has been reported that the first writers who were asked to adapt the novel to the screen felt that it couldn't be filmed. And I think essentially they were right. And she also, Pauline Kael, also questioned quite reasonably, I think, what this movie and Irving were attempting to say about the feminist movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, She said, it's when writers create straw men to attack that they expose what's bugging them. And Irving creates straw women. So that's something I think we should talk about. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's back up and sort of talk about the movie overall. What did you, what was your reaction to it? Um... It's pretty lukewarm on it. It was an, it was an okay film. <laughs> it was a three-star movie. I, w- I don't know that I would give it to maybe two and a half. Oh, um, no. But yeah, I, I could have taken it or leave, <laughs> left it, really. It, it wasn't bad enough to bother me strongly, and it wasn't good enough to really warrant much reflection on it at all. So, okay. Yeah. I actually, I was pleased to see I really enjoyed it this time, actually. Oh, good. Okay. Because like I said, I hadn't seen it in 20 years. Mm-hmm. After seeing it many, many times Mm -hmm. as a child. I actually really enjoyed it. I think it does have some pacing problems. I've read the book, so I, you know, you can see where the screenwriter has struggled to get all of this stuff in there and make it all make sense. And you can see George Roy Hill struggling to make it all resonate in a way that is hard when it is sort of one vignette after another. Right, right. But... I do think it's good, and I still think those two performances are great. I think Glenn Close is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about her. Let's sort of go through this film a little bit, starting when we meet Jenny. Mm-hmm. Actually, we start with the credit sequence. Where we meet the baby. <laughs> Where we see the baby. I love that credit sequence. Why do you love that credit sequence? I don't know. It's just quirky, and the baby is super cute. <laughs> uh, all right. We got the Beatles song, sure. When I'm 64. Mm-hmm. No, it didn't do anything it really for you. It didn't do anything for me at all. <sighs> it's going to be one of those days. You know who has a similar credit sequence? And I don't know if this is where they got it. Um, but uh, Billy Elliot has... I don't remember. I think it's the outgoing credits where you basically see Billy jumping up on the bed. And um, I believe the track on that is a, it's a T-Rex track, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> okay. But it's just this very sort of jubilant moment of like the pure joy that he sort of finds in movement and dance. Uh-huh. Um, so I like that one. I didn't particularly care for this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay. So we, so we meet Jenny in 1944 mm-hmm. talking to her parents, which mm-hmm. is the great... Hume Cronin and Jessica Dandy, yeah. who were not too happy that she has shown up with a baby. Unmarried. Unmarried. And doesn't know the father's first name. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a cute little thing. So uh, let me start by saying I sort of found every character in this film insufferable. Okay. Um, So that may be why my feelings about it are just kind of like, meh. Like, I just, I didn't particularly care for anyone, really. And not Jenny. But yeah, so, but that was a... A nice little sort of, again, vignette, little comedy vignette where she's speaking to her parents, but her father's like hard of hearing. So the mother is sort of repeating mm-hmm. everything back to the father and he can only sort of hear what she's saying. And I mean, but yeah, that was, but it, it's so that's our introduction to Jenny as a sort of quote unquote independent woman. Mm-hmm. Um, she wanted a baby. She didn't want a husband. So she raped someone and had a child. <laughs> okay. All right. So <laughs> it's a little while before we get that story, but let's talk about the the conception of Garp here. Mm-hmm. She was a nurse and there was a injured brain damaged, like fighter pilot or something. He was, he was a, he was a gunner, tail sure. gunner. Mm-hmm. 
brought into the infirmary and he had a constant erection apparently <laughs> despite being he had shrapnel in his brain, brain. all he could right, say was yeah. his name garp and he had a constant erection and she wanted a baby and so she basically saw that as a prime opportunity to just sort of use him as an inseminator mm-hmm. and she did and he apparently said good so is that consent I, I feel like that's what they're trying to they're trying to make it okay because he said good and yeah so then she had the baby that she wanted so you have, you have a problem with any of this well it's rape <laughs> so in general i'm anti-rape it's a, it's a sound policy mm-hmm. i do like that that's the reaction the one person she tells this story to in the movie has to it too yeah he's he's disgusted <laughs> and <laughs> horrified right yeah. justifiably horrified yeah. at this story well, and then it's presented as somehow this moment of feminism of like, I'm claiming my yeah. right to have a child on my own. Right. It's like, that's fine. You yeah. can do she that. Says, I, I didn't need a ring. Right. I needed his sperm. You can do that in other ways. And I, I understand at that time, artificial insemination was not the technology that it is mm. today, but you could have just found somebody to sleep with and gotten pregnant and had a baby. and. But, but not somebody who would have died five minutes later. I mean, that I think was what she was looking for there. I would argue that you could find someone to get you pregnant and who would be happy to walk away. <laughs> immediately afterward and never speak no, to no, you men, or your child again, that. except that they do all the time. So, so yeah, it's, it's painted as this, you know, independent woman moment that I think is a little bit problematic. <laughs> uh, this was not, I won't say that this was autobiographical. It was not, but John Irving's mother was an unmarried single mother. Mm-hmm. And apparently she would never tell him anything about his father. Until he was well into adulthood, she never told him anything about who his father was. Mm -hmm. And supposedly he said to her at one point, if she didn't tell him, he was just going to make it up. And she said, go ahead. And that's what he made up? And that's what he made up. That's troubling. Okay, so just, I mean, just in terms of themes, and I think this is a common Irving thing. So Garp is almost like a virgin birth. He he has no father. (laughs) You know, Jenny is completely sexless. Mm -hmm. Um, Except for the rape. Except for the rape Mm -hmm. part. Yeah. But I think that's, that for whatever reason, I think is a theme in Irving's, I mean, Owen Meany, spoiler, I think he literally was a virgin birth. We're led to believe, but yes. Okay. See, okay. Go ahead. No, I I feel like then that paints her as Mary, this pure, uh-huh. you know, sort of feminine ideal. Right. She raped someone. <laughs> <laughs> and her idea of feminism seems anti-sex. Yeah. Uh, well, this is yeah. This is what we're gonna have to talk about. So it's feminism if done in a way that she sort of prescribes, and I yeah, I don't mm-hmm. I have a problem with this character. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean she does sort of become the basis for a religion, so there's there's a parallel there. Yes, a, a very a cult militant quote-unquote feminist movement, you know, built on a book that we don't really hear much about what's actually in it mm-hmm. beyond this idea of, you know, lust as the sort of ultimate evil and a woman is either a wife or a whore. Um, so he seems to have, I just feel like a lot of her, what we hear of her theories is based on actually a very patriarchal understanding of gender and well reacting against the very patriarchal understanding of gender her point was she didn't want to be someone's wife or someone's whore she wanted to live an independent life Mm -hmm. okay which as far as that goes is feminism okay i i agree it's there's there's some (laughs) problems here okay we'll we'll get to that okay okay so you want to talk about garp's childhood at all here 
the the pre Robin Williams segment of the movie. Robin Williams doesn't show up until about a half an hour into the movie. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's he's a weird kid um, <laughs> who you know daydreams about a father that he never knew and is you know very attached to his mother. Very lives very much in his own imagination. Mm-hmm. Is prone to trouble and accident. Even as a baby, he apparently was very into porn. So. Okay, that was not his fault. So yeah, so he's growing up at this this prep school where his mother is the nurse, mm-hmm. and that again is autobiographical. Uh, Irving grew up at Phillips Exeter Academy, but yeah, that Irving has said. I think he wrote like a pref, a new forward to this book on the twenty year anniversary, and he said he sort of sat down, went back through it, and was like, "What the fuck is this book about?" Mm-hmm. And he one of the things he came up with was he said it seems to be about lust, mm-hmm. the presence of lust in our lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that, yes, it starts right as a baby as someone shoves a nudie magazine into his crib. Right. But when she tries to take it out of the crib, he holds it rather tightly. <laughs> well, yeah. He, you know. So I don't know if that's like some statement on men are just inherently into porn from birth. I don't know. It's just a little odd. So yeah, so he grows up with his mom around a bunch of sort of horny boys. And girls. And girls. Don't forget Cushy. Cushy is... <laughs> Cushy's interesting. So Cushy is his next door neighbor, the girl, one of the girls that lives next door to him. Yeah. And she has a fun game um, where she says, like, let's play... What is it? I don't even she know. She says, I know how to make babies. Oh, yeah, I know how to make babies. And so she basically repeats what I'm assuming she's heard her mother say, which is, I have a headache. I don't want to do it tonight. And then I'm assuming her father says, you always have a headache, and then attacks her and takes off her clothes. Yeah. And so she and Garb... This, this is what of, she's learned from her parents yes, who have about 12 children. Mind that little loving exchange mm-hmm. um, while her sister watches Poo. weirdly and silently and creepily. <laughs> and then the family dog attacks Garp and bites off his ear. Mm-hmm. Like happens. Sure. Not scarring at all. <laughs> I think sex in John Irving's world is very often scarring. Mm. All right. So, yeah, we get the we get the wrestling. This is, again, this is one of John Irving's obsessions is wrestling. He was a wrestler. So mm-hmm. we, all his books have fucking wrestling scene, <laughs> scenes. Um, it's a wrestling picture. But Garp likes it because it, you wear helmets like. Right. Flyers. Like, like his dad. Right. And he climbs up on the roof and pretends to be his father shooting down enemy planes. Mm-hmm. And then nearly falls off the roof. Yeah. And his mother has to save him. Uh, and in the process of saving him, the Eve from the roof falls and hits the Dean, is it? Yes. In the head. Yeah. So. Who spends the rest of his life believing that he caught right. Garp when Garp fell off the roof. Okay. So this is childhood. And then we get right. Then Robin Williams shows up mm-hmm. looking a little too old to be the high school student <laughs> he's playing, but yeah. that's okay. We're going to, we're going to forgive that. Well, he looks older than the 30 when he's supposed to be 30. So. Yeah. Um, and we get his meet cute with Helen. Helen Holm. Uh, played by Mary Beth Hurt. Yes. Uh, so at this point, Garp is on the wrestling team, and Helen Holm is the daughter of the wrestling coach. She is wearing glasses and reading a book, so she's a very serious, studious person, <laughs> we're supposed to infer. Um, and they have a little bantery moment. You, you didn't like Helen either, did you? Not very much. Oh, dear. Um, I just felt, I don't know, everyone felt false in this, mm. except for John Lithgow, oddly enough. Okay. So then we get a scene with um, at a wrestling match, and uh, Helen and Garth Garp. I keep want to call him Garth. Garp are <laughs> giving each other uh, googly eyes across the gym, and um, yeah, Garp almost loses his match right, because, because he's, he's distracted. So into this chick. <laughs> 
And the mom sees, you know, Jenny sees it and she approaches Helen's father after and says, you know, you need to keep an eye on your daughter. <laughs> it was my son is full of lust. My son is full he's of lust. He's lusting after your daughter. She's basically Carrie's mom. Right. So, okay. And he's like, well, don't worry about it. She can take care of herself. Right. It's just, it's only natural. And she says, well, diseases are natural too, right. but that doesn't mean we need to give in to them. Mm-hmm. Is that anti-sex yeah. thing? Not really sex positive. No. Jenny. No. Cushy, however, is sex positive. Yes, because she's ready to go. Yeah. Anytime, anyplace, including in a like a yard in the, <laughs> on campus or something. And again, her little sister is there watching. Yeah. That is such an odd character. I just, I don't who? know. Yes. Well, yeah, she's not even a character. She's, she's just like a mute mm-hmm. pervert. I just, it's weird. Um, But yeah, so she's watching. Maybe don't name your kid Poo. And then she sees Helen and waves Helen over so that Helen can then see... Yeah, she's a little shit-stir. Um, Garp with Cush... What is her name? Cushy. Cushy. This is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and, of course, Helen sort of runs away horrified because she thought that Garp liked her. Uh-huh. Which he did. Right, but he apparently also has to have sex with every woman that he sees. Okay. Biological. And uh, me- meanwhile, Garp has found out that Helen only wants to marry a writer, so that's pretty much what inspires him to become a writer. Yeah, to be a writer, yeah. And he starts writing, and he writes his first story for her. Mm-hmm. And gives it to her. Yeah. She is not impressed. I don't even know that she actually reads it. But no, she's she doesn't. Just, yeah, she's just like, you were just fucking that girl, so I don't want to read your <laughs> shitty short story. And she runs away, as she should have. And then Garb gets his revenge on the dog. They have a little tussle, and then he bites off the dog's ear. Garb bit Bunky. Yeah, so full circle on that. And then we're off to New York to become a writer, because that's where you go. To be a writer. To become a writer. Mm-hmm. With his mom. Yeah, I don't think that was part of the plan. Garp said, I want to go to New York and become a writer. And his mother says, good idea. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And apparently they have both decided to become writers. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually found an old short story of his one night and realizes that he was writing about her. And she got very indignant about that because she was like, I'm still alive. I may actually want to write about my own life. So mm-hmm. you can't write about it. And he noted that nothing had actually happened to him yet. So he, that's why he was writing about her. But this apparently sparked something in her and she decides to try her hand at becoming an author as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's writing nonfiction and she yes. needs to do a little research. So she interviews a prostitute. <laughs> Played by Swoozie Kurtz. About lust and, you know, I don't even... It's a... (laughs) I'm not quite sure what she was trying to get with... It wasn't a great interview. Um, Well, we didn't hear the whole interview. I don't don't think it was that much better. I mean, the prostitute did not seem like a very deep thinker on any of this. Well, we can't assume that she wasn't a deep thinker. She wasn't... Jenny really wasn't asking particularly interesting questions. Okay. I think we need to review Jenny's interview style. We do. But it ends up with Jenny paying for Garp to have sex with this prostitute. Because he needs it or wants it. And then she goes home and writes Sexual Suspect. Yeah. And becomes instantly a worldwide celebrity. Feminist icon. Feminist icon. Mm -hmm. You you have some some issues with this. Again, we don't get enough of the actual book to sort of parse what her actual theories are. And it looks like a really long book, too. It's a dense tome. Mm. We just hear the sort of dichotomy of the whore wife thing, and and then it's just what we sort of know of her in the world, which is that she's pretty anti-sex and judgmental, and so I assume that that's what the book is about, but it apparently resonates with a lot of white women, and yeah. There's one black woman who comes up. I think she's the only black character in the movie. Oh, okay. I don't even recall that. But it, it, her feminism doesn't appear to be particularly intersectional. No, I don't think it is particularly intersectional. 
So yeah, I mean, other than um, Helen saying, you know, the critics don't didn't really care for his mother's book and they really loved Garp's writing, she has still become this sort of movement, mm-hmm. um, riling the women up to the point where people are trying to assassinate her. Okay, so maybe now is when we talk about that. So Irving has said that part of what he was wanted to write about was this kind of post-sexual revolution moment. He said, The novel struck a nerve in what was a post-feminist period of reevaluation of sexual relationships. The 60s said sex was all right, that we all could do it, but by the 70s, the complications of sexual freedom had begun to set in. Garp was a depiction of a sexual world gone mad. As such, it was a plea for sanity for common sense. It was? Uh-huh. Okay. You didn't get that? I did not get that, no. From that? <laughs> okay. He said, sexual liberation had still left us with hatred between the sexes, intolerance of sexual differences. He also said he imagined that it would be out of date almost before he finished it and is surprised now to look back on it and see that really not that much has changed. So this was hailed as a feminist novel. At the time, Ms. Magazine put Irving on a list of sort of feminist men Mm -hmm. for Integrating feminism as a major philosophical theme for writing about rape with its true terror and brutality, for creating male characters who care about kids, and for understanding that feminist excesses are funny. Um, The reviewer for the Chicago Sun-Times called The World According to Garp the most powerful and profound novel about women written by a man in our generation. It's probably a low bar, but okay. (laughs) You were not impressed with any of this. Well, I mean, and I guess this is the point, but it seemed to be very mocking of feminism, or at least this sort of idea of radical feminism, quote unquote. It's definitely, yes, mocking radical feminism. And I think, again, this, I think, is an urban, I think any kind of political extremism, he has no sympathy for. Mm -hmm. In the next book, Hotel New Hampshire, there's these, like, European anarchists that turn up and they're portrayed as ridiculous and awful. Mm-hmm. I think in Owen Meany, I think the Vietnam War protesters come in for a lot of shit mm-hmm. from Irving. So yeah, I think he political activism of any kind, he's not really big on. Okay. But yeah, I mean, this sort of leads us into what I think is the most problematic invention in the story, which is the Ellen Jamesians. Right. So Jenny has turned her success into, she's, She's kind of turned her family home in New Hampshire into this sort of commune. For broken women. Women's colony, place for broken women to heal themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's where Garp first encounters the Ellen Jamesians. Yes. The Ellen Jamesians are a group of women who, in response to the brutal rape of a young girl named Ellen James, whose attackers then sort of cut her tongue out um, so that she wouldn't be able to identify them or name them. So these women... Though, though she, the, the book makes clear that they were just stupid and didn't realize that she could actually just write down. Right. And, you know, so yeah. yes, these men were hot or whatever. But. Um, so this group of women in sort of solidarity with her decided that they would then cut their own tongues out and never speak again which is a choice (laughs) yeah this is the sort of straw figure representation of feminism Mm -hmm. or at least extreme feminism Mm -hmm. and and i do think it's pretty problematic it's pretty bad yeah yeah 
Well, because there's no no real counter to that, right? So to call this a feminist novel, then you would hope there would at least be some sort of counter to that. Some sort of, you know, if you want to call it sort of sane, I don't know, but like this idea that... Some kind of vision of what actual so, second-wave feminism looked like. actual second-wave feminism was, and it, you know, but instead sort of having this group of women define that movement, I think, is a little, is trivializing and condescending. And then to have Garp be the man that comes in and is and and sort of just and judges it and and feels that his calling is to sort of save them in spite of themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I just I would question the idea that this was a feminist novel because and again it is the sort of the only other symbol of feminism we have right is Garp's mother mm-hmm. and from what we see I don't know that I would necessarily call her an activist I think she just makes she does what she wants because she's in a privileged space where she can sort of do what she wants and she is a nurse and she happens to want to sort of care for people. Mm-hmm. And so she's opened her home to care for these women. Um, and she does towards the end sort of move into politics and sort of acts as a surrogate for this Senate. Woman who's running right, for governor. Governor, mm-hmm. whatever. But beyond that, there isn't much to her feminism besides I want to do what I want to do. And that's fine, but it's just like, but then the other side of that coin is we're cutting out our tongues. Right. In solidarity for, like, we're muting ourselves. Right, silencing ourselves. So I just, yeah, I I question the idea that this is a feminist novel. Yeah, okay. I I agree with all of that, actually. Yeah. Uh, right, and we're we're review- we're talking about the film. We're not talking about the novel. I should stop right. going back to the novel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at Jenny's house, we also meet Roberta. Mm-hmm. T- t- tell me about Roberta. So Roberta is uh, a transgender woman played by John Lithgow. She is probably the most even character. She's certainly the sanest character yeah. in the movie. And I will say, you know, to his credit, she she is allowed to be sort of a full character mm-hmm. with wants and needs and, and a, a story that isn't solely about how the world is rejecting her as a transgender woman. Right. So yeah, I, like I said, tra- uh, uh, Roberta's probably the only person that I can stand in this film. <laughs> One thing that encourages me, if the miniseries ever happens, um, on his blog or somewhere, John Irving said he had written the the screenplay, the teleplay for the miniseries, and Roberta was the POV character mm-hmm. and the narrator, mm-hmm. which I think is an excellent direction to take this. Yeah. Um, where are we? We about ready to start having affairs? Sure, why not? Okay. Um, so then we get into sort of boring, cliche, you know, middle income, suburban life. Suburban infidelity. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Garp cheats with the babysitter. That's not a cliche. At all. I have to say I'm thankful that he checks and double checks her age. That's very thoughtful of him. <laughs> um, and then Helen cheats with her student. Yes, Michael Milton. Her graduate sort of student. An Again, another cliche. brand Val Kilmer type. Sure. Much less interesting. <laughs> and that all works out very well. Until it doesn't. The babysitter, Helen figures out immediately that he slept with a babysitter. Yeah. But there are no real repercussions for that. Well, because he denies it. He denies it, but she knows damn well that it happened. Yeah. And forgives him pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then we move on from that. Yeah. As opposed to Helen's affair. Right. Which, go ahead is continuous and i think i mean it's not clear she and maybe this is this story is told more fully in the book i'm unsure of her motivations if it's just she's bored or if it's in retaliation to what garp has done or if it is he's a young dude and he's interested in her so can be all three i think the movie suggests it's a little bit retaliation but um so yeah she has this sort of ongoing affair with him 
and eventually they get caught. Yes, his his ex-girlfriend turns them in. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to Helen's quick, silent forgiveness of Garp, Mm -hmm. Garp is furious. Yes. He basically absconds with their children and takes them on a mandatory fun day at a diner (laughs) and half of a movie. um, And then just sort of swears at them for most of the night in anger. Um, Then he decides to go home when he realizes that Helen isn't answering the phone. Yeah. So something must be happening. So they pull into the driveway and there's a car accident at a very inopportune moment. And Why is it inopportune? Because uh, she was in the middle of giving this graduate student head. so <laughs> A goodbye blowjob. Sure. And so the sort of force of the accident causes her to bite his dick off, I believe, <laughs> is the implication. No, it's it's stated yeah. straight out, yes. And kills one of their children. Yes. Knocks the eye out of another one. Yeah. And Garp, like, bites his tongue or something in the middle of the accident that ends up with him having stitches in his tongue. So, yeah, it's, you know... Not a good moment for anyone. No. So my point about this, I guess, is, again, questioning this is a feminist novel, mm-hmm. the the difference in consequences between their two mm-hmm. infidelities. Sure. In that his is barely mentioned. Right. And quickly glossed over. And hers is the end of the world. Right. It results in the death of a child. Right. Yeah. So the punishment, in narrative terms, the punishment for her act is so much worse mm-hmm. than the punishment for his. Yeah. I, I did like uh, when they're having that mandatory fun day you talked about. They were out in a diner eating. Mm-hmm. And the little kid says, what's mom going to eat when she gets home? A little foreshadowing. A little, little foreshadowing there. <laughs> that Michael Milton was going to have his dick bitten off in a Buick. Yeah. Which is, side note, the movie, the version we watched, the Blu-ray, cut out the line. It's Roberta's line. She says, you know, I had mine removed under general anesthesia, but to have it bitten off in a Buick. And the version we watched just said bitten off. Right. And I have to assume at some point Buick registered a complaint about this. I mean, it's not a good... Why else would they change that line? Reference to your your, your brand, man. <laughs> you don't want your brand associated with... You know, castration. That's yeah, probably no. hmm. not good. Seems a little petty on Buick's part well... to me. Anyway, okay, now we're in the healing portion of the movie. <laughs> Sure. The family moves into Jenny's home for broken women, and um, Helen can't really speak because her neck is in, like, a contraption, and uh, Garp can't speak because, again, he, like, bit into his tongue, like, he stitches into his tongue, and his jaw is wired shut, so they sort of mope around each other silently for a while. And then they eventually sort of come together and forgive each other. And decide to have another child. Because that's how you fix a marriage. (laughs) I believe you said that's not a good idea. Yeah. they said that. It's not. You maybe want to get a divorce after hitting your wife in a car and she bit off her lover's dick. You really disliked everybody in this I movie. I really did. I had no one in this film. There was nothing for me to grasp onto. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't find the story interesting enough to make up for the fact that I didn't care about anyone. I'm surprised. I thought you would like Jenny because I like Jenny. Why would you? Why do you like Jenny? I don't. She's. I mean, she's weird, and she does have this anti-sex thing. Mm-hmm. But she, I think she's she's just a unique character. I think she's, in her way, a very loving, empathetic character. But also monumentally selfish in some ways that make her sort of terrible. Like raping a dying soldier? Yes. <laughs> so you, you never got past that part. It's a hard thing to get past. A little bit. <sighs> 
this is just a failure across the it board, really wasn't is. it? I didn't enjoy this film at all. Okay. Well, I'd actually rather watch an epic failure like Lord of the Rings than this. Wow. Yeah. That is a bold statement. Because at least that I can make fun of. This just, I feel like I'm watching some boring middle class white families shit. And I'm just like, okay, there's real things going on. <laughs> I'm just not. <laughs> you have fun with your little drama. I'm going to go somewhere else. <laughs> okay. So this turned out to be a bad choice on my part, yeah. apparently. So let's just kind of barrel through the end of this movie here. Okay. Where are we? He decides to write the book about Ellen James. Yes, yes. Against the advisement of his mother and everyone else around him, because, again, he feels like he is the person to speak for Ellen James and, and to tell the Jamesians that they should not be cutting off their tongues. So, yeah, that's what he does. Mm-hmm. I will say in the book, Ellen James gets better treatment. Ellen James is an actual character in okay. the book. She, I think he, I don't think he writes a book about her, but I think he writes like an open letter or something mm -hmm. and she reaches out to him and then she becomes part of the family. Okay. Really. Anyway. Okay. And then we have Jenny's death. Yeah. So they have another baby, a little girl. Um, Jenny hangs around to be grandma for a little bit and then she says she doesn't want to be grandma anymore and she leaves to go work on this political campaign. And um, she's at a podium speaking and she is basically assassinated. Right. There's a big old to do. And the feminists want to have their own sort of memorial funeral that does not involve the attendance of any men. Right. Gart obviously takes issue with that and basically says I want to be able to mourn my mom the way that I want to mourn my mom and, and be around others who are mourning her. So he attends the funeral in drag. Which is an actually kind of a selfish mm -hmm. act on his part. Yeah. Because they have already had a funeral. Like, we have already seen the funeral yeah. for Jenny. They yeah. had a funeral with the family and everything. This is a feminist memorial right. thing that's happening in New York City that he is determined to crash. Mm -hmm. So, But when you spent a whole film painting this feminist group as completely irrational and... And you set yourself up as sort of the condescending savior of them or the one that's going to come in and tell them, you know, what's right and what's not right. It makes total sense that he did that. And it makes it hard to feel compassionate towards that group of feminists because you've set, you've spent the whole film making them to be sort of ridiculous. So anyway, he goes to the funeral in drag and then his fucking lifelong nemesis, <laughs> uh, Poop, whatever her name is, uh, sees him, outs him. Yeah, she's an Ellen Jamesian now. Yes. Yeah, she has no tongue. Yeah. Uh, which, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, Roberta, you know, gets him out and... Right. Roberta has basically become a Secret Service right. agent for both Jenny She's and Garth basically, at this point. you know, playing a linebacker. <laughs> and um, then he meets Ellen James, the actual Ellen James. Yes. And a in her... quick cameo by Amanda Plummer. What was she in where she was weird? She's weird in everything. She's weird in she's everything. Ever okay, in. she was. What, yeah. Um, what am I, I mean, of? she's in Pulp Fiction. She's right. I feel like she was weird in something else though. She, she. She's yes. She always <laughs> plays these super damaged characters. She was. Uh, she's in the Fisher King with Robin Williams, but I don't think you've no, seen that. No, I haven't that. seen the Fisher King. Oh fuck! Was she in um? Oh, what's that movie that I love that you hate? Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> the one with um. Viggo Mortensen as the devil. The prophecy? Yes. Was she yes, in I that? think she is in the prophecy. <laughs> yes, that's where I know her from. Yeah, she, yeah, she plays some fucked up characters. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the prophecy. That's what I was thinking of. Okay. Um, 
Right. So they have a little moment in the hallway where she is holding his book about her and sort of mimes the fact that she, you know, loves it and appreciates that he wrote it and they have a little thing. And then she sort of shows him into a cab. um, And that's his little Ellen James moment. Yeah. So then we're back with the boring family and they are (laughs) trying to make a life built on bullshit. And... They are supposed to be going on a date, but his idea of a date is actually sitting in a car, looking lovingly at their children. Yeah, and, their and we haven't we, we we haven't talked about Garp as a family man through because this is another. Yeah. I mean, as much as anything else, I think the book and the store the movie are about like parental fears mm-hmm. about their children, mm-hmm. uh, all the terrible things that could happen to your children. Mm-hmm. We see Garp battling with this guy who drives through the neighborhood, drives through the neighborhood recklessly yeah. and you know stuff like that that's all about protecting the children mm-hmm. when they buy the house it's after a small plane has crashed into the house and garp says it's pre-destroyed it's or something. pre-disaster yeah. right we'll be safe here yeah which of course does not turn no. out to be true no yeah. it doesn't because that's not how life works no so yeah so they're sitting in the car looking lovingly at their children and Sort of just talking about looking back and being sure to remember things and how important that is and how every moment has led to this moment. And yeah. <clears throat> isn't it lovely? And so he goes. I'm, I'm curious. Were you surprised by any of the deaths in this movie? By any of the terrible things that happened? Because mm. I was, and obviously I knew what happened, right. but I, watching it this time, I was like, man, they really foreshadow everything yeah, that's coming. it's pretty. I mean, that scene you're talking about, Garp is talking like he's on his it's deathbed. Like he's dying, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I like to sit here and look back at my life and mm-hmm. look at the whole arc of my life. Yeah. And well, he's like yeah. 33 years old. And again, this idea that it's it's not, it's sort of a disconnected film that's just a bunch of vignettes. It almost makes sense that people just die because like, okay, act one is over, act two. That the, person, the next interesting right, thing the that next, happens is, right, the next huge is disaster they is they die. So he's decided to take a job as the wrestling coach at the at boys' the school, school. Right? There's a lot of full circle. A lot stuff of full here circle too. shit. There's, um, there's a scene with him talking about what classes his kid is going right, to take, which is exactly what his mother is, did right. with him. Yeah. And Helen is back on the bench with her glasses and her book, you know, watching the wrestlers. Yeah. And then Poop walks in, <laughs> dressed her as a nurse. Her name is not Poop. Does it fucking matter? <laughs> she walks in. And dressed as a nurse, and no one is at all weirded out about that fact. And she just walks right up and shoots Gart to death. I'm um, apparently, and the the movie makes that leaves that open. But but then when he's in the helicopter going to the hospital, he does this whole, oh I'm flying like you're dying, dude. That's what that is. So I think he died. Um, he, he did die, and he gives this whole speech about telling Helen how important it is to make sure that she remembers and blah 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 and. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and then we have the baby being thrown in the air again. Yes. The yeah. end. <laughs> you just you were just not feeling this movie? Mm-mm, not at all. Did you enjoy any of it? Not really. I mean, like I said, I thought Roberta was good. Hmm. But other than that, no. Were there any particular vignettes nope. that you... Come on, you dig a little deeper than that. I'm digging. I'm digging. I'm digging. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. You didn't enjoy any part of it. Tell me what you enjoyed. I don't know. Well, you need a better argument than that. If I'm saying I didn't like this at all, tell me why you liked it. You like Jenny. Okay. I like Jenny. I like Roberta. Okay. What else? Um, I think parts of it are funny. Like? I don't know. Well, this is what you want me to do, right? So now you. (laughs) Tell me what was funny about this film. What parts were funny? I don't like you putting me on the spot like that. Well, 
I don't like you making me watch shitty movies. <laughs> At least <laughs> have the courage of your convictions and, and share what you love. The fail in this experiment. Like, you have to be able to defend these films. No, I can't, I can't because I think I saw it too early. Well, you, but you just saw it now. So, and you said you enjoyed it now. Right. But I enjoyed, but it was nostalgic for me watching it this time because I remembered everything that happened mm-hmm. fondly. Mm-hmm. But does that make it a good film or is it just memory? I've seen Sliver. I saw Sliver when I was a child. It's not a good film. <laughs> so I just don't. I'm, I'm glad you acknowledge that. I would. So that's what I'm saying. So is it just nostalgia or do you actually think it's a good film? I think parts of it are good. I think Jenny is good. Okay. I think that's a really good performance and a really interesting character. I think Roberta, though she doesn't get a lot to do, mm-hmm. is a great character. I think Robin Williams is uneven. He is, I think, very clearly still learning how to act. Mm-hmm. I think the movie deals with a lot of interesting stuff. I think now I can see that it does not deal with all of that in a really great way. I think it. I think it is problematic. I do think it has a lot of, as Pauline Kael said, straw opponents to make the argument against and a lot of convenient justifications for things. Mm -hmm. I think as an effort to tell this big unwieldy story in two hours, it was probably doomed, but I think they did as well with that as they could have. Mm -hmm. And there's stuff that I think is put in there for the movie to sort of give it more shape. The flying thing, for example, mm-hmm. his obsession with flying, mm-hmm. that's something that's not in the book. In fact, a third of the book takes place in Europe. Like, he's flown before. Okay. But that was something that the screenwriters obviously came up with to... As a connecting device. Kind of give yeah. this a sort of shape to it, mm-hmm. um, which I think is pretty well done. I really don't like you putting me on the spot. I'm going to cut all of this out. Well, part of, I thought part of this exchange was you also sharing why you loved these films. The ones that, particularly the ones that were in that third bucket of, they're not critically acclaimed. They're not hugely popular. They're just ones that have resonated with you for some reason. So then you should be able to articulate why they resonate with you and why. And usually I can. But for this one, you can't. Not so much. Because no. it's not a good movie. <laughs> Which I feel is the crux. <laughs> but okay. <sighs> Anything else to say about the world according to Garp? No. I have nothing else to say about this film. <laughs> okay. I, I guess we're done. <laughs> this was not a success. It's my fault. It's probably not a good choice for this. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nikia, I think uh, The World According to Garp being about white suburban angst was the perfect film for us to lead off Black History Month with. (laughs) Uh So let's keep that ball rolling. Mm -hmm. It's hard to come up with a Black History Month film because you have seen all of... All of the movies starring black people? Pretty much. That's not true, but okay. (laughs) Most of the important movies Mm -hmm. about or made by black people you have seen. (laughs) However... You have not seen what I think is an important film starring really one of the most important black actors in Hollywood history, Sidney Poitier. Yes. So next week, we are going to watch In the Heat of the Night from 1967. Mm-hmm. So I get a whole one movie for Black History Month. No, you want to do all? We can do, let's do all Here's the, the rest thing. of the month. Your list cannot maintain that momentum. <laughs> The list of films you've selected for us to watch in this experiment couldn't fill a Black History Month. Is that a challenge? Sure. I mean, you're going to fail it, but sure, if you'd like to take it as a challenge. Okay. 
We'll see what we can do. Okay. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can download earlier episodes, find our contact and social media link, leave us a comment, or make a donation to support the podcast. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. Yeah, I was I did not care for that one. Yeah, we got that. <laughs> I don't think there's any confusion on that point. Just really didn't. I did not care for it. I'm sorta of rooting for Glenn Close to lose now. <laughs> A little bit. That's way harsh. Well,